Um, I don't know if you've noticed, um, but there's this ridiculous optimism in Scottish rugby. Uh, you might have noticed it in Scottish rugby fans. Every year we go into the Six Nations, this will be our year. Last year, Scotland welcomed England to Murrayfield with that same sense of optimism. It started really well for Scotland. Gilchrist won a penalty in front of the posts. Laidlaw slotted it 3-0. Great start. At this stage, along with every other Scottish rugby fan, I was visited by this familiar, nauseating hope. A sort of daring expectation. This will be our year. This will be the year that we beat the old enemy at last. The following 10 minutes only added fuel to that fire of hope. Scotland looked like the better team. There was an urgency. They looked dangerous every time they got the ball, but that urgency got the better of them. They gave away a penalty. England naturally slotted it three all. Same story. It looks like it's going to happen again. Hopes and expectations questioned and wavering. Is this really our year? Our true crime story in John reads just like this. Jesus, the promised and innocent defendant, has just been sentenced to death. Is this really the Messiah? If he is, what on earth is he doing on his way to die? The Messiah was supposed to save his nation from oppression and rescue them from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. He was supposed to be the king that led us to victory. The king that, like David, helped us defeat our enemies. Instead, have a look at verse 17. This man carries the apparatus of his own execution. Picture that scene. Those sentenced to crucifixion were often beaten within an inch of their lives first, a process that for many left them bleeding out. Some of them died. Here is Jesus on his way to his own execution, no skin left on his back, dragging his own cross to his own crucifixion. Is this really the Messiah? And see in verse 18, he's crucified among others, just one of a group of common criminals. The Romans have no special place for Jesus here. He couldn't look more human, less like a king, more defeated, less victorious. Is this really the Messiah? And it was, it was common practice to post a, a pronouncement of a criminal's sentence uh, at their crucifixion, but see what is fastened to Jesus's cross. It's hardly a criminal sentence. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Perhaps the Jews were right to ask for it to be changed. This man claimed to be King of the Jews. That claim doesn't look like much anymore. Is this really the Messiah? John writes like this intentionally. This is how Jesus' followers were feeling. Jesus has lived with them, performed miracles before them, claimed to be the victorious king that they were waiting for, the one that they thought would rescue the Jewish nation from its present enemy. But now he's convicted, a convicted innocent man on his way to die. I wonder, do you limit Jesus' crucifixion like this? 
What do you expect from him? That he's going to deal with your challenges today and tomorrow. Maybe you're praying for a new job or for restored relationships, for physical healing, for financial provision. And in it all, do you forget the significance of this moment? Have you given John's account of the crucifixion the time that it deserves? Let's explore it together. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. We're in verse 23. Have a look at it. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Maybe this was the plan all along. It does seem strange, doesn't it, that Jesus is off to die. But Psalm 22, written 500 years before this moment, definitely suggested that the Messiah's clothes would be divided and lots would be cast for his garment. This was definitely supposed to happen. What Jesus does in these next few verses is extraordinary. See, Jesus makes provisions for his mother, asking John to take care of her as though he was her son. These verses might seem strange at first, out of place even, but here we're shown how incredibly thoughtful and caring a son Jesus was. Even while in deadly pain and knowing what was to come, Nonetheless, he thinks first of his mother and makes provision for her. What's John doing here? Well, Jesus is starting to look like that victorious, selfless Messiah again, even as he hangs there on the cross. Maybe this was the plan all along. Hope is stirring. Later, in verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Uh, A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And again, John has us thinking, I'm sure all of us thinking of Psalm 22, written 500 years before. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And if you're really clever, Psalm 69 as well. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. It's not an accident. This too was definitely supposed to happen. Maybe this was the plan all along. And what about that stalk of a hyssop plant? There's a hint in there too. The Jews uh, in the audience and the crowd would definitely have noticed it. It's the Passover story of that lamb that is slaughtered on the night when the Israelites escaped slavery in Egypt. Do you remember the story? The lamb is slaughtered, the blood is plastered on the doorframe. And what were they supposed to put the blood on the doorframe with? A branch of hyssop. The kind of branch that was offered to a thirsty Jesus on the cross. This isn't a coincidence. Every word is intentional with John. Maybe this was the plan all along. Right at the start of the book of John, we come across this crazy preacher, another John, the Baptist, Hear what this crazy preacher, how he describes Jesus in chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Maybe Jesus has to die. Maybe this really was the plan 
all along. I don't know if you remember this, but I definitely do. Scotland did win that day. Uh, They beat England, and it was an emotional roller coaster for me. Uh, One of hope and expectation, pessimism and doubt. But when the final whistle blew, when it was all over, it was finished. Finn Russell, the Scotland fly half, had been amazing that game. He was phenomenal, and he justly uh, won man of the match. Here's what he said in his post-match interview. Don't think that we surprised ourselves. We had a game plan and we executed it really well. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, it is finished. This passage has been climbing towards this moment. So is the whole book of John. The Gospels, the New Testament, the entire Bible. This is the moment. It is finished. But what is finished? What was Jesus' game plan? Why did he have to die? We've seen just now how John the Baptist describes Jesus as the Lamb of God. And we know that the Passover Lamb was sacrificed so that God's wrath would not fall on the Israelites. Perfectly loving God who contends for justice sees evil in Egypt, just like he did in Egypt, and rightly responds with wrath and with punishment. What would happen if I walked out the front door of the school, walked down the street onto Sheep Street, found the first stranger I could and punched them in the face? What would the consequences of that action be? What if I was to walk down to the police station, find a police officer, punch them in the face? How would the consequences change? Or jump on the train to Marlebone? Walk through Hyde Park up to the gates of Buckingham Palace. Punch old Queenie on the face. See, the consequences of our actions depend on who our actions are directed towards, don't they? We face the appropriate punishment depending on our actions. God, who created us, has given us a blueprint of how to live. How to live according to his will. And we all turn away from that. Try and live our own way. There are lots of things that we do that, lots of things that we convince ourselves are more attractive than God. Money, sex, power. We follow our desires. Thing is, when we chase these things, it's as though we're turning our backs on God. It's as though we've walked up to him and punched him square in the jaw. And so we face God's wrath. We deserve to be punished accordingly. This isn't something to be trifled with. This is a promise of eternal suffering. The Lamb of God at the Passover was sacrificed so that God's wrath would not fall on the Israelites, provided they trust in that promise, put the blood on the doorframe. Jesus' death on the cross does the same for those of us who trust in him today. He takes the punishment of God's wrath on his shoulders And we have the opportunity then to stand blameless before the God of the universe. This is what he finished. That we might enjoy eternal life with him. Don't think that Jesus surprised himself. God had a game plan and he executed it really well. And with that, verse 30, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And then 
see how the Jews then want the bodies taken down. They want the bodies taken down so that these dead bodies don't ruin their upcoming celebration of the Passover. Then they ask the Romans to break the legs of those being crucified, to speed up that process, to get rid of these bodies. Look at the way that John builds the tension, starting in verse 32. Are they going to break Jesus' legs? The Roman soldiers, they break the first man's legs and those of the others. But then, verse 33, when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. They do not break his legs. Verse 36 reminds us, this is another prophetic fulfillment. It points out, uh, it points rather to the Passover lamb, who, according to regulation, would not have its legs broken. And then verse 34, where Jesus' side is pierced with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Jesus is already dead, completely and convincingly dead. But again, see in verse 37 how this is all finishing what had long since been started. They will look on the one they have pierced. A quote from Zechariah 12 verse 10. This passage, these surprising prophetic fulfillments, they're incredible. They help us see exactly who Jesus was, what it was he came to finish. But more than that, they help us believe. Hundreds of years before Jesus died, God spoke through individuals promising his arrival. Who he was, what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, it's all there. And this is John's mission statement. It's our memory verse for the series. John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's because it really did happen. It's because that truth changes everything. See, in verse 35, he refers to himself. John refers to himself in the third person. It's something he does throughout his book. And he says that he saw this and that his testimony is true. He really wants us to believe this. This is why he adds these details that we may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and have life in his name. Will you believe? Let's have a look at how Joseph and Nicodemus respond then uh, in verses 38 to 42. Start with verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, and this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, we come across him in other Gospels. We know a bit about him. He's described as a rich man. He's part of the Jewish social and religious elite. But he's sympathetic to Jesus' cause. And he asked Pilate, back in the text, uh, for the body of Jesus, but secretly feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. It seems that Nicodemus too had been scared, only willing to visit Jesus by the cover of night. But they don't seem so scared anymore. Collecting the body in broad daylight, in full public view, openly declaring their allegiance to this dead man. They had watched this supposedly promised man die on a cross. And they knew that the price for allegiance to him would be persecution at best, 
maybe even crucifixion just like him. And yet they openly declared their allegiance to him. It's all too easy for us to forget what Jesus did that day. To go about our daily lives as though it never happened. To turn to Jesus in the cover of darkness, maybe behind closed doors. Maybe you're the sort of person who's there in the morning with your nose in the word, on your knees praying by your bedside at night. But do we openly declare our allegiance to him? Do we live and walk as those who know God because of what he did for us on that day on the cross? Maybe you're the sort of person who needs to publicly declare your allegiance to Christ. To take that step of faith, head out into the real world and take Jesus with you. And he does go with you as you interact with your neighbours, your colleagues, the person sitting opposite you on the train. Are you prepared to be made a social outcast? For people to look at you strangely, to question your sanity. This is the world that we live in. And look at what these guys do next. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilos. Just picture that for a second, 35 kilos. Think about bags of sugar. It's a lot of spices. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it up with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And then they laid Jesus in this new tomb, uh, probably one belonging to this rich religious man, Joseph of Arimathea. Do you see what they're doing here? 35 kilos of spice, strips of linen. This was not normal. This was the kind of burial reserved for a king. They're treating Jesus like the king that he is. Maybe you're the sort of person that isn't afraid of people. Maybe you're the sort of person that will publicly declare your allegiance to Jesus whenever and wherever you can. It's in your Instagram bio, Jesus follower. You've got one of those fish-shaped bumper stickers on your car. Everyone knows you're the Christian. You're the one who goes to church. But do you treat him like the king that he is? I don't know what picture comes to mind for you when we talk about a king, a monarch. Maybe, like Johnny last week, you picture uh, the queen, a slightly outdated but ultimately harmless figurehead. Maybe you think of tyrannical kings of old, keeping taxes high and themselves fat. Either way, we quite like to keep the crown on our own heads, don't we? To reign in our own little kingdom of our own little lives, to hold tight to the reins. But Jesus is the perfect king, righteous, loving, sovereign and eternal. How do you treat him? How do you treat the king? Does he reign in all aspects of your life? Does he hold the reins, determine the direction? Do you see how Joseph and Nicodemus treat him? Have a look in verse 31. John refers to this day of preparation the special Sabbath. He says it again in verse 42. The Jewish community are preparing for the Passover feast, the festival that brilliantly uh, celebrates the Passover lamb. But it was a festival that you had to be ceremonially clean to take part in. How do you become unclean? Well, rule number one, don't touch dead things. 
Joseph and Nicodemus, two prominent religious men, rule themselves out of the festival of festivals because they recognize Jesus as the true fulfillment of the Passover lamb. They make themselves social and religious outcasts. It costs them everything. What might it cost you? Are you prepared to swallow your pride, take the crown off your own head? In all of this, there's nothing that you can do to finish this work of Jesus. It is finished. It's done. It doesn't need to be done again. It's already happened. It is finished. We're going to sing in a second about the wondrous cross. And maybe as we do that, think to yourself, do I declare my allegiance to Christ? Who wears the crown, me or him? Do I really believe that this is the truth? Let me say a quick prayer before we sing. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for sending your son to die in our place. Thank you that he was able to say and mean it is finished. Uh, Please, Lord, help us to remember this, to remember that there's nothing that we can do to bring about um, our, our salvation, that it's already been done in that moment. Help us to declare our allegiance to you. Help us to take the crown off our own head and put it on yours instead to allow you to reign in our lives. And Lord, help us to believe that this is really the truth. Amen.